Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. second reading is from the letter of James, chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. Are there any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if any among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, on this day, we give you thanks and praise for the chance to have gathered, uh, not in each other's presence, but in yours and bound together uh, by that presence. We give you thanks and praise for this strange way of meeting, and even more that you are no stranger to strange meetings. And so in this time and place, let us hear your word well. Let us open our hearts to one another uh, and to this world that you love. And in all things, may we heed your call to uh, not just be hearers of the word, but doers of it. So convict us where we need conviction and comfort us where we need comfort. We pray in the name of Jesus, uh, rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, you know, sometimes I, I wonder why I like the letter of James so much. You know, we, we've been reading through it for uh, most of the last month. And um, every week when I sit down to write a sermon, I'm like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> James, what are you getting me into? Because it feels like at every turn, there, there, there's something that kind of rubs me the wrong way, you know? You know, right from the get-go, he says things like, Whenever you face trials of any, any kind, consider it nothing but pure joy, <laughs> because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let that endurance have full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And I think to myself, that sounds like a guy who hasn't had any trials in his life. 
Yeah, that sounds to me like it sounds sort of like some first year seminary students I've met before they take a pastoral care class. And then, then you know, he says in chapter three, we heard it a couple of weeks ago, you know, that, that not many of us should become teachers in the church because teachers will be judged with greater strictness, which for the record, I still uh, don't think is fair. And, and then in today's reading, we have this kind of we have this kind of transactional prayer thing that makes me kind of awfully nervous as a pastor. The prayer of faith will save the sick. And I don't uh, I don't really like the implication that when we if if the right people pray hard enough, then everything is going to kind of be fine. And I don't like it because I I've seen so many people racked with. with disappointment and bitterness and shame because they prayed for some healing for themselves or for others then they prayed faithfully they prayed fervently they they prayed righteously and those prayers seemed to go kind of unanswered maybe you've maybe you've been one of those people and i i've prayed for lots of people who've not been healed of one sickness or another and it's not that i haven't seen the opposite i have i've seen people healed through the power of prayer of all sorts of things in ways that can only be called miraculous. You know, I think of a kid in one of my mom's churches whose parents was, were told when he was born that he would never walk or talk because of some brain damage in utero. And the church came together and they prayed for weeks and months for this kid. And then this kid spent his childhood years ripping around the sanctuary in his little walker and disrupting worship with his commentary. And the doctors could offer no logical explanation. I bet, I bet some of us have similar stories, right? But I still have to wonder whether Pastor James eventually had to eat these words in the end, you know, because frankly, you've never met anyone from one of the churches that James was writing to. Uh, they were all promoted to glory quite some time ago. And so does that mean that they, they didn't pray hard enough or that their prayers weren't sufficiently righteous? And it's possible to kind of spiritualize all this in a way that maybe lets James off the hook. And some commentators say that uh, interpret that line, the prayer of faith will save the sick, along with the second part of that verse, the, the Lord will raise them up as a kind of ultimate someday sort of healing. You know, eventually these fragile bodies will be raised to new and imperishable life. Death has been destroyed in Christ. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we catch this glimpse of what's coming for all things, and I believe that, and I'm certain that James does too, but I don't think that's what he means here. I think he really believes in the power of prayer and that the presence of God changes and heals things in ways that we can't reasonably expect, but that for some reason in the church we're bold to anyways. And, you know, maybe in the end, that's why I actually love this little letter so much, prickly as it might be, <laughs> because James won't settle for anything less than the presence and power of God in this world in the thick of our everyday lives. And he doesn't want us to settle for anything less either. You know, he's sold out for this truth that in Jesus, God has done a thing that changes everything. In the wake of Jesus, how, what he taught, how he lived, who he is, and most importantly, in his resurrection and ascension, nothing is the same. The way things are is not the way that they will be, which means that they don't have to be that way now. Now, James sort of hints here and there at an age to come, a time when every tear will be wiped away and every hungry belly will be filled, when death will be destroyed and nations will be healed and all things will be made new. 
He believes that day is on its way, but James wants us to see, to know, and to live the fact that it's not just going to be true then, but that it's true now. Now, if Jesus lives and reigns, it's not just true then, it's true now. That, that's what James is getting after. Now, and how do we weave that truth into every inch of our lives? If Jesus is how God is, uh, and, tell, and that tells us something about how things will be, then how do we get in on that now? How do we let God's future invade our present? I think that's why James spends most of the letter going on about how we talk to each other, right? Or how we live together, how we spend our money and treat the poor, how, what we're ambitious about, uh, how we use our time. Read through the letter sometime this week. It won't take you long. It's only five chapters. He, he doesn't talk ever about going to heaven when we die. He talks about what we're doing right now. James doesn't just want us to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. He wants us to let God make us the answer to that prayer. He doesn't want us just to say, as we do each week, that Jesus is our, our judge and our hope. He wants to join us in figuring out what on earth that means anyways. What does it mean day in, day out? And come what may to let ourselves be caught up in God's resurrection dream for the world. What will happen if we take this stuff seriously? You know, so when James says something as ridiculous as whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but pure joy, he's not just naive or uncaring, right? He's consumed by this promise sealed in Jesus that suffering and evil are not just going to not get the last word on us. They are going to choke on their tongues. They are headed for the grave. And we are not. And we can laugh in their faces. Which is not the same thing as being indifferent to pain and suffering and loss or our, our own or others. It, it's not that we shy away from the heap, ash heap of suffering as often as not we're called to run towards it. It's not that we don't care when life is reduced to rubble as often as not Jesus sends us in to help with the hard work of rebuilding. And what's more, I think this probably isn't an attitude that should be imposed upon others. You know, if someone, especially someone who's not a follower of Jesus, you might risk this with someone who, who, who is, but if someone, if someone is suffering and if someone is facing trials of any kind and you go ahead and tell them how lucky they are <laughs> and they smack you, don't be surprised, right? You probably deserved it. And still, even acknowledging that, we do in whatever ways we can get to refuse to let evil convince us that it gets to, to, to decide how things are. Now we pull off its mask and reveal it for the paltry thing that it is. The, the power of death is nothing compared to the power that raises the dead. And that's the power that we're about. And so James say, can say something like, you better not become a teacher if you're not prepared to be held to account, because this is serious stuff, right? The church it is bold to handle the things of heaven. The writer Annie Dillard famously tells us to, that when we come to church, we should wear crash helmets and life preservers, that we should lash ourselves to the pews, uh, the, the, because we're daring to have to do with this God who made the heavens and the earth with a word. So, so we'd better all have some good and serious teachers in our lives, right? If we're about to go skydiving, you don't want an instructor who's never been in a plane. You're going to go right white water rafting. You want the, the person who's leading the, the charge to have held a paddle before. <laughs> and those, uh, those, those, those examples may seem kind of silly and obvious, but why would we not want our teachers of faith, which is the most 
dangerous and exhilarating thing to have some pretty serious skin in the game, right? Life is on the line here. And so in today's passage, we have this intensity about prayer and its power, not because we Christians have, have God at our beck and call. And, and, you know, prayer had better not turn into a competition to see who's more righteous, uh, which one of us can get God to listen better. But James's life and death serious about this because he knows that the God of the universe cares about life on the ground. And I, I want to just pull back from the passage a, a little bit and think about what an audacious thing that is to say. Right? It's not audacious because we're too clever and modern for things like miracles, but it's outrageous to believe that the one who sustains and who made and sustains everything from, from galaxies to atoms, from quasars to quarks, the God who made all of this stuff cares about one little life. That's an outrageous thing to think. It's a bonkers idea. I mean, surely God's got something better to do. But St. Peter says something similar, you know, when he tells us to cast our cares upon the Lord because the Lord cares for us, which may sound trite if you've grown up <laughs> hearing that God loves us for a lot of years. But when, when Jesus and, and James and Peter and Paul were saying this thing for the first time, it was astonishing. Now, in the first century, most people did not believe that God's loved them. God's used the world. God's made humans to do their bidding or for their pleasure. God's were interested in the world, but only insofar as it benefited them. And then here come these Jewish Jesus followers saying that the God that they had come to see know most clearly in Jesus loves us. That God loves us with a self-giving love. And so, you know, the more I think about this passage, the less I'm worried about the logistics of prayer, which I don't necessarily claim to understand anyways, and the more amazed I am at the call to pray at all, right? To have the nerve to pray like the Bible teaches us to pray assumes a God who is deeply, personally invested in our lives. The God of the universe is deeply, personally invested in your life. Like, let's don't get bored of that. <laughs> that should take our breath away. So it means that our, our, how we spend our days really does matter, right? Not because we're trying to prove ourselves or gain some status that we've been told we should be chasing after, not because we'd better watch our step or else, but because our lives are of eternal consequence. And what we do, big and small, matters for the kingdom of God. Most of the saints would tell us that we can no, do no big things. We can only do small things with great love. But our lives are worth everything to the God who made us and knows us and loves us beyond measure. Right? We're, we're not just meant to pay bills until we die. <laughs> James wants us to, to know that we're meant to get in on the redemption of the world. We're, we're caught up with this God who sets captives free and raises the dead. We're, we're invited, we're called, we're commissioned to live this reality boldly wherever we are and with whatever we've got. And that's, that's easy to say, and it's really hard to maintain, at least for very long and certainly on our own. And of course, we say we're never alone, right? God, the Holy Spirit has our back all the time. God is closer to us than our next breath. That's true. As we say every week in life and death and life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. 
And I think that makes all the difference in the world, but still in the midst of so much noise around us, the, the busyness that overwhelms us, the, the expectations that weary us, the doubts that bind us, the sin that weighs us down, even if we believe all this resurrection stuff, it's still pretty hard to sustain, isn't it? And I think that's why James ends his letter the way he does. This letter where he's called us to do hard things. He ends up by talking about prayer. And not just prayer when things are bad, but also when they're good. I mean, it's a, it's a peculiar truth about us, right? That it's easy to forget about God when things are going well, isn't it? It's easy to forget about God when things are going well. But the irony is that it's when things are going well that we are especially susceptible to the pain of loss because we're easily tempted to stake our lives on the things that we do and have, which can all be taken from us at any time. But, but prayer, whether we're suffering or soaring, keeps us rooted and grounded in God's faithfulness, God's love, God's relentless commitment to be with us no matter what. Now, because prayer isn't just about asking for stuff. It's about drawing near to the God who's drawn near to us. And we need that every bit as much when uh, everything is sunshine as we do when the thunderclouds are rolling in. And, you know, prayer is this deeply personal thing. Most of my prayer life is done in silence and by myself. But I think what's most interesting about this last chunk of James's letter is that it's one more reminder that the Christian life isn't mostly about an individual spiritual journey. You know, that, that matters. We take our stories seriously, absolutely. But let's pay attention to the fact that this whole passage assumes the presence of others. You know, we don't suffer in isolation. We don't worry about burdening others with our problems. We don't have to try to maintain our dignity uh, to make others feel more comfortable and our, our, us, ourselves less vulnerable. And in fact, we get to invite people into our vulnerability. <laughs> and that may sound like a horrible idea to you. And most of the time, it sounds like a horrible idea to me. But the proof's in the pudding, right? There's mountains of evidence to show that healing of all kinds happens effectively or more effectively when we're in it together. So James tells us that if we're sick, we don't have to pretend that we're not. We get to invite others in to carry the pain with us. When, when he says that to let folks come and anoint the sick with oil, it's this kind of marvelous image of the community gathering around a person to declare that in the frailty, the, the frailty of their bodies is not the thing that defines us. Instead, in their weakness, the person is anointed like a priest or a prince in the kingdom of God. James tells us to confess our sins to one another, which again may sound like a horrible idea. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be that vulnerable, do we? You know, but as, as the folks in AA would remind us, we're only as healthy as the secrets we keep. You know, when we hide our brokenness, it tends just to break us more. But wildly, when we share it, God can build something altogether new. And strangely, what feels most dangerous is the thing that actually heals us. You know, St. Peter, I've, used this, I've shared this image before, but St. Peter tells us that, that the devil's like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy. And of course, the lion's tactic is to isolate the prey from the pack, to make them more vulnerable. But when we confess our sins, James tells us, to one another, we get to say to each other that the pack is still with you. 
right? I promise that there is nothing more freeing than confessing our sin to some to someone who will, and this is a good caveat, confessing our sin to someone who will offer us the grace and forgiveness of Christ. And we all need someone who will believe for us that the grace of Jesus overwhelms any sin in our life. Now, and also when we confess our sins, we discover that our sin really isn't that interesting. Now, I, I've, I've sat in circles with people where we were expected to confess our sin to one another. And what you discover is that most people's sin is more or less the same. Now, sin is boring. <laughs> Your sin is not interesting, let me tell you, because the devil's not creative. Evil can only destroy, but God can make deserts bloom. And as the church, in good times and in bad, we get to come together physically and otherwise, week over week, to remind ourselves of that. You know, and the gift is that, that when I doubt, you get to believe for me. And when you doubt, I can maybe believe for you. We get to figure out how to live this stuff together. And we get to practice stumbling step by stumbling step, being evidence for one another that God really is living and active in this world and in our lives. That God has a call on our lives. That our lives are of eternal consequence. That God's deep desire is for our wholeness and our healing so that we can be beacons of God's hope and peace and joy and love in this world, wherever we go and come what may. And so may it be so. Amen.